Hey, everybody. Tonight, instead of Adam, this is Joel from the Dollar Bin. And tonight we have uh, somebody who I've wanted to talk to for a long time. Uh, we have Steve Englehart, who has – is it fair to say that you're a legend? Can I say that? or You can say that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would say that, but, you know. <laughs> and uh, tonight we have also uh, – Josh is going to be sitting in in place of Adam. Josh? Hello. <laughs> so um let, we always kind of like to just start at the beginning um just kind of get some background on you and then we can kind of start to cover the i guess 35 or so years of your career um uh what was your first exposure to comics well i mean i just read them as a kid you know that was back at a time when comics were on sale pretty much everywhere not just in comic book stores so i you know there was i don't recall any special place that i went or thing that i did but it just you know i can remember reading comics as far back as i can remember really were you a marvel or a dc guy well i mean again when i started reading them as a kid it was i guess dc was around sure uh marvel wasn't really around then i would say of the two i'm a marvel guy um but it is, in fact, true that I read Batman and Justice League, or not Justice League, yeah, Batman, Superman, whatever, as a kid, and there was no Spider-Man at that point. So uh, my first exposure, I guess, to the big two would be DC, but I'm a, I'm a Marvel guy. <laughs> when did you know that comics was what you wanted to do? I mean, I, I saw that you have a psychology degree. When did you decide that comics right. is what you wanted to pursue? Well, I was in college, you know, on my way to that degree, when a guy in my dorm came up to me with a Spider-Man comic and shoved it in my hands and said, you got to look at this. And I did, and I liked it. That got me, you know, back into comics. I'd kind of outgrown them the way a lot of kids do. But in college, I got back into them with Spider-Man. So that's probably what set me down the Marvel path. My college was just a couple hours outside New York. And in those days, pretty much all comics was done out of New York. So I was able to indulge my interest in comics by going down to New York one day and going to visit both Marvel and DC. You know, I just, I could feed my interest by buying comics, reading comics, and also seeing some of the people who did them. And, and people who did them turned out to be people, not demigods or anything. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, that I could do that. I'm not, you know, I'm not exactly sure when that switched over to, I am going to do that, but there was just a period there for several years when I was sort of getting more and more involved with the actual business of doing comics. Again, from the start, at the beginning of this process, I was just a fanboy going and hanging around people, but it just all, it didn't seem like a, a huge leap in order to get into that business. And I, you know, I really did like them. I found, you know, this was a time when not only were there the big two, but there was also Gold Key, which was doing stuff like Magnus Robot Fighter, which was mm -hmm. a fine book off yeah. the side. There was Charlton Comics. You know, there, was, there were a lot of companies who were doing interesting comics. And they were cheap, you know. They were 10 cents, <laughs> 12 cents, whatever they were at that time. So there was no problem with sort of buying a lot of them and being able to really get a feel for the all the different art styles, all the different writing styles, all the different characters that were out there. Um, and this is all in addition to newspaper strips, which were a bigger deal back then, too, than, than they are now. So there was a lot of comics in all directions, if you want to look for them. <laughs> so were you always interested in writing, per se, or how did you get into that particular aspect of comics? 
by accident, actually. My father was a reporter, and so I had written stuff. You know, writing was in my genes, and there are things I did when I was a kid, you know, all that stuff where I would write stuff. But what I wanted to be was an artist. It was the art that really probably caught my attention. I had nothing against the writing, but it was certainly, um, you know, I can remember the art, like a lot of people, I can remember the art better than I can remember the story of things. So, you know, in the first couple of years when I was getting closer to comics and then when I actually started working in comics, I was a sort of budding artist. I was, um, that's what I was pursuing, that's what I was doing, and uh, then through total happenstance, I ended up, Gary Friedrich, who was an assistant editor at Marvel, he wrote Ghost Rider and Sergeant Fury, in addition to being an assistant editor, uh, took off for the summer and asked me if I would, uh, we just sort of knew each other from being around New York. As I say, everything was done in New York, and so if you got into comics, you pretty soon got to know everybody in comics. And <laughs> for whatever reason, he, he asked me if I would sit in for him doing the editorial stuff at Marvel for six weeks for a summer. Hmm. And at the end of six weeks, he decided he didn't want to come back, um, and he sent back the uh, a little six-page monster story that he was supposed to have dialogued but didn't. And Marvel just kind of looked, you know, they were. it was a small company. It was a bullpen, the way they described it, it really was, and, and just sort of looked at me and said, hey, you, assistant editor, you want to try to write this thing? And uh, <laughs> I said, sure. And, and I wrote it, and I enjoyed writing it, and they liked what I came up with. And so they said, want to write something else? And that's how I became a writer, you know? I mean, it was oh. just the right place, right time. That's what year was that? Probably 72. It's, it's hard for me to remember because things were kind of just blending into each other. And the books themselves, you know, came out with a date that was several months in advance of when they actually, you know, how that works. Mm -hmm. It's dated right. ahead of the actual time. So I think some of my earliest, I think my earliest stuff is sort of, says 1973 on it, but it would have been probably end of the summer of 72. Now, did your psychology training uh, influence your writing at all, do you think, or give you any special insight oh, into character? Yeah, I think so. Um, I studied psychology because I wanted to know why people act the way they do. You know, why do people do what they do? And by the time I got the degree, I realized that psychology couldn't answer that question. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I thought <laughs> psychology had the secret of the universe, but it was, you know, but it's basically a number of theories, different schools of thought on theorizing on how it all works, which wasn't what I was looking for. The, uh, writing comic books didn't give me the secret of the universe either, but I got a chance to kind of get in there and write the different characters, you know, get, get inside a lot of different people's heads. And that is right up my alleyway. So I'm sure stuff that I learned in while I was getting the psychology degree came in useful on a purely technical level, but the whole thing was based on wanting to get inside people's heads. Again, that was, you know, I was I was taking the psych degree while I was still thinking I was going to be an artist, so it wasn't as if one thing was clear in my mind, but, uh, you know, when I started to write, I realized that was something that I really did enjoy doing. Well, well now, you said that your first comics writing was really about 1972, 73, so it's been about 40 years. Um, how do you feel about, uh, how the writing has changed in comics over the last 40 years? I mean, there seems to be more of a emphasis on decompressed storytelling, uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that. I mean, uh, 
people, you know, you learn what you learn. You do what you do. If I were to come into comics right now and that was, you know, the way stuff was done, I'm sure I would learn to do that. But the reason I'm a Marvel guy was because I liked the pace and the, and you know, and the atmosphere and so forth of Stan Lee's stuff followed by, you know, Roy Thomas's stuff. And then, you know, as I say, there were other people doing their stuff. But all of it had a certain um, non-decompressed style to it. And that, to me, is what comics are. Well, newspaper strips before that. I mean, the decompression is a new thing. That really hadn't existed in any form for a long time, you know, 50, 60, 70 years or something before it sort of came around. And it came around sort of after I had primarily moved away from comics, so I wasn't even, haven't even been that exposed to it, so I don't even know how we got there, you know? I don't know how, how people decided that was the thing to do, but I just, you know, there's a rhythm, there's a pace, there's a certain amount of pizzazz uh, to a comic book page that I expect to see, and if I don't see it, it doesn't do as much, you know, for me. Um, I'm also... Life does move on if, you know, if people like that. I'm not here to say, oh, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, it, just, it doesn't do much for me. Sure. Have you uh, changed personally as a writer, do you feel like? As you've, uh, like, what, what are your strengths now compared to when you first started? Well, I've changed primarily. I mean, well, okay. You know, when I got in, as I say, I wrote what sounded right to me, and they liked it, so they gave me more to do. But, you know, obviously in the beginning, I was working out of the tradition that I had been reading to that point. You know, as I wrote more and more and took over more and more books and did whatever, I obviously developed more of my own pacing, my own sense of how things worked. And, you know, I get I am one of those people who who did a lot with character, and not everybody did. So, you know, in developing character and exploring inside people's heads and all that that I said, mm -hmm. I mean, I built up things that worked for me that I was good at. But the interesting thing to me is that since, you know, since I stopped doing comics, I've been doing novels. Right. And what I never learned to do while writing comics was to say, he went to the window and peered out at the rain, you know? I mean, that kind of stuff, you didn't have to do that in comics. You just tell the artist, he's at a window looking out at the rain, and then, and then fine, then you'd see it. So writing prose in between scenes and so forth is something that I've had to learn just in the last, you know, six, seven, eight years. Uh, I mean, actually, I've done it before. I started it back when I wrote a book called The Point Man in 19 late 70s, but, uh, you know, in terms of doing it as a regular thing, I've had to develop that. But by doing as many comics as I did over as long a period as I did, even though I broke up that period, you know, I developed eventually a Steve Englehart voice, whatever, well, you know, whatever that is. <laughs> and that was just sort of evolution. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't set out to go anyplace or do anything. I just told stories and found out what worked. Which was the great thing about comics. I always thought that, you know, you would do them and then three months later they would be out on the street and then back in those days we dealt with letters sent through the post office rather than email. But uh, soon enough you would be getting feedback from people saying, I like this part, I didn't like that part. And you were, you know, I was writing four, sometimes four and a half or five books a month. So I was continually coming up with new stories about the characters, continually getting feedback 
while in the midst of coming up with new stories about the characters. I thought it was great training, you know, great a great way for a writer to function. I'm sorry, but I've just, you know, I've thought guys who, like, go to Hollywood and spend six months writing a script and then spend two years flogging the script, and then, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a much slower... And the book business, which I'm involved now, is also much slower from conception to finishing the writing to getting it in print to getting, you know, getting the feedback on it. So I was, you know, I think in terms of evolving myself as a writer, I'm glad that I did comics. Do you remember any kind of specific uh, storyline or thing you're working on that was redirected because of fan input or feedback? Nothing really comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, stories were short enough, even though sometimes stories would run three, four issues, whatever. I usually had finished a storyline before, (laughs) you know, the first part came out and, and, and started getting feedback on it. So as a general kind of just, yeah, you would alter like the way you approached a story. Not really. No. In, in, again, in those days we had complete creative control. So, um, yeah, absolutely nice. Um, (laughs) and, and again, you know, it wasn't, if I came in now and that didn't exist, which it doesn't, I wouldn't be standing around going, well, where is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, because it's just you take you take what you what you see. But that was the way comics were done in those days. Um, they told us just here, go. So I was open. I was open to everything. But point I'm trying to make is there were rare occasions when Marvel editorial or DC editorial would say, we want you to do this or that, or not do this or that. Very rare. And some of those might have been driven by some reaction that they received or something. But, um, I, you know, I mean, I can remember I got an email from, or um, probably a letter, from somebody while I was doing the West Coast Avengers, and they said, you know, nobody's ever really done a good Christian character. So I said, well, I'll do a good Christian character. What, you know, the characters are characters. So I came up with Firebird. Right. And so I remember that was something where I said, I will do that because somebody asked for it. But I don't think there were, you know, many occasions you know, just because people were, you know, I think, again, were, were more inclined to enjoy the comics rather than try to figure out what I ought to be doing six months from now and write and tell me about it, you know? Right. So, In terms of uh, a lot of the things you're known for then, like, see, you know, the the Beast uh, changing him to the you, – you were writing during the change to the blue furry period or gray furry period at that point, right? I was yeah I was during one of those periods. I mean Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway were the people who decided to turn him into the furry guy with gray fur mm-hmm. and then I took over with the second issue and in that in my run he turned into the blue fur. So yeah, well, so Okay, so was that I mean uh and then yeah, like Avengers Defenders War and uh, and the Ma- the Celestial Madonna stuff like were those all born just straight from your imagination, or was there yeah, any kind those of... were. Okay. So no editorial interference or anything? Not like, we need to cross over, give us... Defenders no, I mean, the ed- interference basically came sort of toward the end of, you know, what I consider the Marvel Age in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, when they... There was a time when they decided that the Fantastic Four was a, you know, a product mm-hmm. and needed to be marketed and therefore could not just be sort of done with create creative control anymore and that's when we started to have you know difficulties and more interference and so forth but up until that point pretty much well i, I mean again sorry west coast avengers mark <laughs> grunwald said you know put dr pym in there and make him a make him a doctor who type scientist rather than ant-man this time 
nice. I mean, you know, so there were things where people would say, we'll do this, you know, mm-hmm. edit, editors, whatever. But general, I mean, you know, even then, it was 99% creative freedom, and before that it had been 100% creative <laughs> freedom. I've told this story a zillion times, but I was writing The Avengers, and I was writing The Defenders, and mm-hmm. Marvel had always put out special annuals for the summer, and for some reason they weren't going to put out any annuals that summer. And mm-hmm. I, as, a, as I say, as a fanboy, I said, well, I want something, you know, and <laughs> I can I can make it happen. So um, I came up with the idea of The Avengers Defenders crossover, you know, I nice. mean... And then Mantis was just a character um, that I created, and then she just kept growing and changing, and I had a fabulous time sort of following her along. And, <laughs> you know, nobody ever said, why is this going on for a year and a half? <laughs> right. You know, or how come her origin just gets weirder and weirder all the time? <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, I mean, the idea was uh, you were supposed to be creative, and that was supposed to sell books. Mm-hmm. And if you were selling books, Marvel had no problem, you know, I mean, there was there was no reason to get in your way. Sure. You know? That was the attitude back then. And again, I, I got to say, I didn't know this till much later, but Roy Thomas tells how when he and Denny O'Neill were hired by Stan to be the assistant editors, Stan really drilled them on making sure that they sounded just like him mm-hmm. because everything had been written by him. And, you know, that was the sound people expected to hear from Marvel. And so Roy, you know, had to learn to emulate Stan. Uh-huh. But when Roy became the editor-in-chief and I came in and Steve Gerber came in and, you know, Doug Mensch came in and, and all these people, Roy said, do what you want to do, if it's, you know, as long as it sells. Roy did not try to make us sound like him sounding like Stan. And again, at the time, I didn't know there was that option. <laughs> but in retrospect, I... You know, there's no particular reason why Roy would have chosen to go that route, but mm-hmm. the, but the fact that he did choose to go that route let the rest of us all be exactly who we wanted to be and create those comics, which, I mean, I did what I did, and Steve Gerber did what he did, and Don McGregor did what he did, and, you know, Gary Friedrich. I couldn't tell you how we got to that <laughs> point, but when I walked in the door, they just said, here, complete creative freedom. Have a good time. And that's what I, you know, nice. okay, that's what I learned to do. Let me kind of ask then, I guess, specifically about some of the stuff you've worked on, if that's okay. I mean, I, I hope you're not too tired talking about some of the stuff you've probably told the same stories uh, about for the last 20, 30 years. Well, I mean, we're telling stories about, <laughs> you know, if I were telling you stories about Steve Gerber's career, I might come up with... <laughs> <laughs> With different well, stories, but I mean, it is a fact. If we're talking about what I did, I only have one version of it, so <laughs> I may have told the story before, but that's okay. We kind of talked a little bit about what your thoughts were as far as decompressed storytelling, and going back and doing some research for this, I was just really struck by a lot of what you told seemed to be kind of the 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 fetus or the impetus for a lot of this decompressed storytelling with the Avengers Defenders crossover, the secret story, secret empire storyline, uh, the evolutionary war, that kind of stuff. It almost seems like you were kind of laying the groundwork for people like Bendis to um, to follow up and kind of take it to the next level. Well, on some level, that must be true. I mean, I'm not I'm not planning to take any of, of Michael's thunder away from him or whatever. But I mean, the fact that I did did it chronologically before he did it. I mean, he must have that I must have been some of the stuff that he drew from. But I mean, that's just an, an accident of fate in that sense. I. I don't understand the concept really behind decompressed storytelling, so I'm not sure how he or anybody else, you know, decided to um, to make that change. 
But yeah, I mean, you know, everybody looks at what's gone before. You know, I came in when Marvel was big and getting bigger. I can remember very specifically when Marvel first passed DC in total sales. Martin Goodman, who was the publisher at Marvel at the time, took us all out to dinner at DC's favorite restaurant. (laughs) Um, I mean, so it was things were big and getting bigger, and eventually they got so big that they then became more corporate. And I mean, I guess that's the nature of things. And 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 so you know, once what a point I was trying to make was after after that there came a time when things changed, and then you know things have changed in some ways quite a bit since then. But most of that's been done when I'm not a, not involved in it, so I can't really, um, you know, I don't know how we got from point A to point B. <laughs> well, let's ask specifically then. Uh, I'm a huge Avengers fan, and how did you get tapped to write uh, to write the big title for him? How how did uh, how did that land in your lap? Well, it was you know that was Roy's decision, and he'd been writing it. It really you know it really was it was a small company. There were a lot of books. Uh, as it grew, they had to hire more people, but, you know, there were never, like, superfluous people around. I mean, if you were doing it, you had a pretty good workload. And, and you know, it was Roy's responsibility to make sure that every book got written every month, etc. So I got a chance to write a monster story, which got me a chance to write a couple romance stories. And, you know, because in those days they had monster books and they had romance books, and it was the way... Writers got trained over there because the superhero audience probably wouldn't see it too much. And if, you know, if you continued to improve, then you could work your way into the superhero books. And so at some point they gave me the Beast, and they liked the Beast. So then I got Captain America and the Defenders right after that. And then, you know, I might have the order slightly unclear at this point. But, I mean, I got I did get Captain America and the, and, and the Defenders. And then... I mean, really, within a month or two of my starting to write superhero stuff, Roy came and said he was going to have to drop off the Avengers because he was now the editor-in-chief, and he wanted me to write it. I, as I say, I hadn't been doing it for very long, but they did like what I did, and I don't, you know, why they didn't offer it, you know, to Jerry Conway or, you know, somebody else, I couldn't tell you, but, uh, uh, you know, he offered it to me, and what am I, I'm not going to say no, you know, so... uh, uh, I took that, and again, I uh, I've touched on this, but it just it seems almost incredible now that they would just whether I'd been there for you know for four months or four years, it still seems somewhat incredible by today's standards that they would just say, "Here, take the Avengers, have a good time," you know, <laughs> without worrying any more about it than that. But I think we all had the attitude that you know we were doing good comics, but at the end of the day, it was comics. It wasn't you know it wasn't movies. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, worth billions and billions of dollars. So that allowed us to have that freedom. Whose decision was to bring in my favorite Avenger, uh, the Beast? Because, I mean, that's still to this day. You brought in the Beast. You uh, brought back Wonder Man. I mean, you made a lot of changes in in your tenure there. But whose idea was it to bring in the Beast? Was that yours or were you told to bring in some new Avengers? No, but Avengers, you know, the Avengers reconstitute their lineup every once in a while. That's a tradition. You know, that was a tradition long before I got there. When I came to the end of the Mantis run, Vision and Witch got married, Mantis turned into a goddess. You know, it was obviously a climax time, which then indicated to me, okay, let's shake up the lineup. Let's try something else. The Beast was my firstborn in that sense. This was after the X-Book had been canceled 
in its initial incarnation. So the Beast was an old-time Marvel character by that point, but for me, he was the first guy that I got to write. And parenthetically, I would say, I didn't think about this at all at the time. It's only been in retrospect, but they had canceled the X-Books. And, you know, in the Marvel Universe, everybody exists in the Marvel Universe, but there was no X-Men book. And so as it happened... They were characters who were floating around that I could use for guest starring in all these different books that I was writing. And so I did, and I was kind of the only guy writing any X characters in that period, which is, you know, only interesting because they became so huge afterwards when, you know, Claremont and Byrne got involved. But anyway, I had a soft spot for the Beast. I, you know, he was the first character I got to write. I really liked writing him, but the book didn't last. It got canceled. Uh, or, you know, reassigned. It was one of those books that, you know, was Marvel something or other, that, or Amazing Adventures, I guess mm-hmm. it was. So when it came time to reconstitute the Avengers, I thought, why not put the Beast in it? Because there was still no X-Book. You know, this was still before Claremont and Byrne. Uh, he was still just floating around in the Marvel Universe. And having just done a more traditional... Avengers, in that, it, you know, the, the, except for Mantis, the characters were all kind of longtime Avengers people. And in wanting to kind of, okay, let's blow it all up and, and give them a new lineup, I thought, why not have this guy who was an X Man but has no place at the moment? That would be interesting. And that led me to Patsy Walker, who first made her superhero appearance in that Beast run. So right. she, you know, back in the Patsy, back in the Beast book, there'd been a thing where Patsy had said she and the Beast had a secret, but I never got to tell you what the secret was because the book <laughs> went away. So I thought, well, you know, I could bring her in, and you know, and, and I needed a character. I needed, um, you know, then powers for her, and the Hellcat character, cat character, had been introduced, and it had, you know, it failed. It hadn't gone anywhere, but there, but that character existed, and you know, so I just sort of put together, brought back. Um, Hank and Jan at that point just was sort of putting together a less traditional group. It's sort of funny because later on I wrote the West Coast Avengers, which was even less traditional in in many ways. Um, And I was not involved, you know, I was not at Marvel in the time between those two things. So how the West Coast Avengers evolved and all that, I don't know. But in any event, um, I put the beast in the book because... I just wanted to write the Beast again, and I, and I had create, complete creative freedom. So since nobody else was using him, I could use him, and so on and so forth. The fact that he then went on to become a really highly sought-after Avenger to this day, people argue about whether he's really an Avenger or he's really an X-Men. That was unexpected. Certainly not anything I was trying to accomplish. I just wanted to write the guy, and and uh, you know enjoyed writing him. So I guess people enjoyed reading him. In that in that context, well, I was wondering if I could ask. Um, we were talking about Patsy Walker, and um, you're kind of known for your like Mantis, Patsy Walker, Valkyrie, and Defenders, Mockingbird, West Coast Avengers. Just uh, really strongly written female characters. Did you mm. like have a lot of women in the house growing up? Like, do you have a lot of like, <laughs> sisters? What's what's your secret to the to writing a good female character? Well, I you know I. I had a mother and a sister, uh-huh. the best I can <laughs> I can do along those lines. I you know, I just always thought people were people. I I you know, I can tell the difference between men and women, but 
I don't, you know, I don't insist. I don't insist on um, vastly different things. And, and when I took over the Avengers, uh, I was told by somebody that uh, you know the Scarlet Witch should like do a hex and then fall down exhausted. And I thought, but she's an Avenger, you know. If she's an Avenger, why would that work, you know? Mm-hmm. So I set out consciously in that case, you know, right from the start to make the Scarlet Witch an equal to the rest of them. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I was, I'm sure it was 70s liberalism and feminism and all that stuff, but I mean, it just seemed logical to me that, that she would be stronger mm-hmm. than she had been and that it wouldn't cost her, you know, she wouldn't then become unfeminine or something if she was, if she was a stronger personality. So, you know, my very first Avengers, the splash page is the Scarlet Witch yelling at you, you know, um, <laughs> saying, God damn it, I'm, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I guess I just sort of started down that road, and, and Valkyrie was supposed to be tough and so forth. But, you know, and Patsy Walker was never particularly, you know, she was always a girly girl in, in many ways. I mean, it's not like I made them all the same either, but I did, but I never had the sense that they had to be definitely inferior um and in fact that they ought to be able to pull their own weight i mean why would you you know if you were the avengers why would you carry around somebody who couldn't really hold up her end of things so it was just sort of as i say logic and a sense that people differ but they're still people Mm -hmm. and and mantis again you know mantis i mean that's a story that's been told a lot too but i mean she started out she was just going to be the slut she was just going to be somebody who tried to seduce all the male Avengers and cause and cause rifts in the group. And then when she got in there, I only sort of figured this out a couple, you know, six months ago. I was writing the introduction to the Masterworks that reprints that stuff. And, and my idea was to make her kind of a bad girl. Somebody would cause trouble. But then I decided to do the Avengers Defenders crossover. And I everybody in the Avengers was teaming up to fight everybody in the Defenders. And all of a sudden, you know, she had to actually do something. She And, and what she had to do was hold up her end of the deal in the midst of a war with the Defenders. And so she turned into a good teammate. She turned into somebody who had the ability to hold up her end of things. And that permanently changed the course of her existence and sort of sent it, you know, off. You know, I, I mentioned a couple minutes ago how I would throw things up in the air. You know, I'd come up with some idea and then figure I, I'd solve it later. In this case, all of a sudden she took a left turn that I hadn't been expecting her to deal with. And all of a sudden I was in unknown territory. And so I would solve that problem. But then I'd go, yeah, but it could even go on from there. And then I'd solve that problem. And I'd go, yeah, but it could go on from there. And, and that's why her story just kept rolling on and on because once she took that left turn, she just went off into some place that I just kept exploring. I would say, you know, my, my women are as different amongst themselves as my men are, but I never thought that they had to be lesser. They could right. be feminine, they could do whatever they wanted to do, but they didn't have to be lesser, per se. No, so I guess that makes them strong. Oh, exactly. Well, yeah, or well-rounded. Uh, yeah, strongly written, I suppose, <laughs> is what I uh, admit yeah. there. Um, and uh, did that influence then the decision to have Mockingbird uh, kill off the Phantom Rider? I mean, that was... Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I love, I mean, I love Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Loved, probably past tense. <laughs> I mean, I really liked her. She was, you know, Mark Grinwald, the editor on West Coast Avengers, had created her. He had done a, a Hawkeye mini, and 
had created her to be Hawkeye's girlfriend. And, you know, he was clear, and, you know, this is not a, a great secret, Mark was clear that this was based on Green Arrow and, and Black Canary, right. you know. He's got the archer guy, so he comes up with the canary, instead, <laughs> but it's the mockingbird. He and I talked about it now and again, but I, but we didn't talk in enough depth, you know, before he died for me to be able to say exactly, you know, if he thought she was going to become a major character or whether she was just a girlfriend for a four-part miniseries. But they put her in the West Coast Avengers before I got there, and um, I just, you know, I really liked her. It's, just, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, she had been a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Okay, fine. But the more I thought about that, I thought, well, S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, they're not Avengers. They do stuff that uh, Nick Fury seemed to be shooting up things a lot and, and, <laughs> and, and doing all that. So, I mean, she's a person who, as longer I dealt with her, the more I learned about her. And I personally really, really liked that storyline mm-hmm. where basically, you know, I mean, she gets drugged and raped mm-hmm. is, is what happened to her. I mean, couldn't mm-hmm. really say so in, in the West Coast Avengers with, you know, directly, but I mean, mm-hmm. and there's no reason she should take kindly to that, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, and, yes. and she was in a position where she didn't have to take kindly to it. And that was, you know, when they, when they bounced me off the West Coast Avengers, uh, you know, at that, at that bad period when they were shifting over from creativity to, to product management, mm-hmm. That's where I was going with that. I really, you know, I was just got started on it, so there was enough there that I, that it'll make sense. But I mean, she adamantly said that she had never signed on for the traditional "we never kill anybody" kind of deal. Mm-hmm. She was a Shield agent who was who was hanging out with the Avengers, and even and then she was an Avenger, but she had never, you know, said that she wouldn't drop a guy off a cliff if he'd <laughs> done something. Else. Um, and. And Hawkeye, you know, was like taken aback because he was old school. And, you know, that's the Avengers didn't do that kind of thing. And and so I split the team up between people who thought that she was right and people who thought that he was right. And if and that's about when I got cut off. I was going to have that extend to the East Coast Avengers, you know, I mean it was basically gonna split the gonna split all the Avengers along a new axis. People who were on her side, people who were on his side, and then I would work that out. And that's and that's exactly one of those things I was talking about. I don't know how I would have worked that out, <laughs> but that would have been the fun of the story, you know, to see right her point of view, right his point of view, right you know the wasp's point of view, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I totally, I you know, there's never been a any time when I thought maybe she shouldn't have done that. I was I was on her side right from the start. I doubt that I would have broken up the traditional Avengers mystique in the end. We would have found some way to accommodate these deals. But I totally thought she was right to do what she did. And I was very sorry to get, you know, to get bounced right at that point because Mm -hmm. I was really looking forward to getting into that. And then in like 2001, they asked me to do a three-part Hellcat mini with Mm -hmm. Norm Brayfogle. And we got the circumstances that had transpired since I had left had put in a place where Hellcat could go meet Mockingbird. And I, you know, did get a chance for what good it did me. But I mean, I wrote this thing where Hellcat goes and finds Mockingbird in hell and says, you know, and and Mockingbird says, you know, I I totally, I'm still down with what I did. And, 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 and in fact, I'm, you know, things aren't what they appear and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, no, my, 
big Mockingbird fan. <laughs> I have this history, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Over across town, right around the same time, I was writing Green Lantern Corps, and one of my big favorites over there was Cat Matui. I'm, I'm not a guy who, you know, who to answer the question from five minutes ago. <laughs> the women are cooler than the men, you know. But I mean, I just really I liked uh, I may, possibly because a lot of the women hadn't done had been considered sort of lesser, and so there was a lot more stuff to do with them as I you know as I took them to be stronger than they were. But I mean, I left Mockingbird behind, and pretty soon she was dead and in hell. You know, I left Cat Matui behind over there, and pretty soon she was dead. So. I don't, <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe the strong women bothered other people. I don't know, but uh, there, there's a number of characters that I really actually, you know, I really like. I really like them as characters that got killed, and I, you know, plus I don't get to write them, so you know, it's the nature of you know, the business, I guess. The whole thing with Mockingbird, I was really surprised because I remember that was uh, when I first started getting into comics. I would have been about. 12 or 13 and reading it I could not believe that Hawkeye didn't back her I really thought he would be in her camp on that and it would have been them against you know the rest of the Avengers or something like that I couldn't believe that he he put this ideal above his wife it was I can see it I but I can see your position too I mean I can understand why if you know he could say what you just said and mean it because he was you know he'd been an outlaw when he started out yeah according to Marvel chronology but at the same time he'd been there for so long and he had been you know he'd hung out with captain america and iron man and thor right along i mean he'd quit now and again uh, but the idea that he was old school trumped the approach you just mentioned in my mind right, you know right. but i mean i don't say that what you're talking about makes no sense whatsoever <laughs> I would be a little remiss if uh, we didn't have to go back and talk about your Batman run for a second. I'm because uh, I think when people think of uh, when people think about you and your your work, I think they kind of the first thing that pops in their mind is Batman and the Joker fish and and uh, all of that. Your run on on, on Batman is kind of like the Roger Stern John Byrne run on Captain America. It was short. It was sweet. It was considered you know almost the definitive take on the character. And then you got out. I mean, is that something that you kind of had planned? Were you surprised by the reaction that you got that that people still hold it up as this is the best that Batman has been? I mean, is, is that something that, uh, that that you're surprised at even today? To an extent, when I was a little kid. As we started this whole conversation, in the 50s, there was Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Justice, no, not Justice League, World's Finest, there was Batman and Superman together. I can remember reading Batman as far back as, you know, as I can remember reading comics. And, you know, when DC asked me to come over and revamp all the characters in the Justice League, because DC had really fallen on hard times at that point, and they, you know, they asked me to come over from Marvel, and redo all the Justice League characters, and I said, yeah, I'll do that, but I particularly want to write the Batman in and of himself, because I just love the Batman. And they said, okay. And so, you know, that's how I got there. But I was, I had left Marvel and had decided to take a break from comics, and my wife had, um, before she knew me, had traveled around Europe for a year, and I had never been to Europe, and I thought, well, that sounds like a cool thing to do. So <laughs> we made arrangements, started making arrangements, to just go travel in Europe, you know, take as much money as we could and go over there and stay as long as the money would last. That was the idea. And then DC called up and said, come do this thing. And, and 
So I said to him at the beginning, I'm only, you know, I'll do this for a year and then I'm going to go. You know, I can revamp those guys over the course of a year. Uh, I can write Batman, you know, for half dozen issues before I go, blah, blah, blah. And that'll get my Batman lust <laughs> satiated. But then when I sat down to satiate that lust, you know, I really wanted to do like the best Batman. You know, I, I mean, I always wanted to do the best Captain America or the best whatever Avengers. But I thought this was kind of a one in a life, once in a lifetime opportunity. I, I was a Marvel guy. I didn't expect to be writing Batman. Uh, if I was going to write him and it was going to be for a short amount of time, I was going to try to do the best thing I could. And if I may say, I did. That was the same approach I took to the Justice League. Justice League has never really been reprinted, so a lot of people don't even know about the Justice League. But you know, in revamping all those characters, you know, I wanted to do like the best Flash and the best Green Lantern and, and so forth that I could do. But in the Batman himself, I took everything I loved about that character and really thought about how would that character, how would I like to do that character? And the, and the, and the, the big thing there was giving him a sex life uh, by making him an adult, finally. I mean, he had never, it always used to freak me out, not freak me out, but I, you know, girls would come on to superheroes and superheroes would blush and stammer. And, I, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of, you know. How can a grown? Why would a grown up do that? I mean, I'm just a kid. What do I know? But I assume that when I'm a grown up, I'm not going to blush and stammer. So, making him a full fledged adult with a full fledged relationship with a full fledged adult woman, I thought was an aspect of his character that I could really do something significant with. And as it turned out, I was right because you know by making him an adult, then Michael Uslan said I can see how I could do this as a movie, and then he did it as a movie, and then they did it as a <laughs> bunch of movies, and then you know, and on and on and on. I you know I just set out to do to satisfy the inner fanboy when it came to Batman, and this was a low time at DC. They didn't I didn't know who was going to draw it. I mean, originally it was going to be Walt Simonson and. Al Milgram, but they oh, had trouble keeping yeah. up with the deadlines, and I had been doing it Marvel style, which was the old way of doing it, where you would come up with a plot and then give that to the artist who would draw that story, and then you would come back and write the dialogue to fit the art, which was my favorite way of doing stuff, because then I would see exactly what you were going to see, and I could tailor whatever I was doing to whatever it was that was actually on the page. Hmm. But I was running out of time. The book was getting later from the artistic end. Uh, Julie Schwartz, who was, you know, a real editor back in the day when, you know, editors really had kingdoms and all that, he was in charge of finding somebody else to draw it, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really anybody famous working at DC anymore. So all in all, I ended up writing, you know, the last half dozen scripts as script in advance, where I wrote that stuff. I got you know I got exactly what I wanted on the page because I was writing it, but it still had to then be handed off to an artist, and we know how that came out. But I mean, if it had been handed off to a couple of journeyman flunkies, which was the most likely scenario at DC, it would have been exactly the same stories with much inferior art, and so the overall product would not be considered as you know, however highly it is, it wouldn't have been that high if it if it hadn't been for the art that I got. But by certain, you know, by chance, they got Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin to do this stuff, and yeah. uh, and so the whole package was then what it was. And I was doing the best thing I could do. As it turned out, Marshall and Terry were also big Bat fans, and they wanted to do the best they could do. 
And all in all, the package turned out to be what it was. Now, we immediately got the feedback on it because, again, it was in those days. I mean, within, with you know, I was in Europe, so I was behind the curve on, on knowing about this. But, I mean, as soon as the books came out, people started jumping up and down about them and, and all that. So that was all very gratifying. If you had asked me back then, do you think people will still be talking about it 40 years from now? <laughs> I, you know, I probably would have said no. I mean, you know, it's like, well, you know, things don't usually work that way. But it's a sort of chicken and egg thing. I mean, it took them 10 years, but eventually, the, you know, the first Batman movie was based on those stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that led to another Batman movie, and then that led to some really bad Batman <laughs> movies, and then that, <laughs> and that read, and that led to some Christopher Nolan Batman movies, and then, you know, and, and meanwhile there was half a dozen animated series and and all that kind of stuff. So you know, even though a lot of that stuff didn't say this all comes from the Englehart Rogers Austin thing, you know, a lot of people in those days knew that, uh, could see that. And those stories were being reprinted in, you know, the greatest Batman stories and the greatest Joker stories, blah, blah, blah. So there was just this kind of convergence. I mean, and again, it benefited from the fact that there wasn't a whole lot else good going on at DC in those days. So people, you know, when they saw this, it wasn't like they then had to turn their attention to something else that would draw their attention away from it or whatever. All in all, it just, everything sort of conspired to make it to the point where it became a long-lasting phenomenon unlike the way most comics run so mm-hmm. i knew you know i knew at the time that i was real happy with what i did i knew at the time i was real happy with what marshall and terry did i knew at the time that the fans were were you know writing in and saying they were real happy with it but i you know there's no way that i thought in 2014 people will still think this was pretty good you know so <laughs> I mean, we've covered a lot of territory. I mean, going, uh, we haven't even touched on the Ultraverse stuff yet. Kind of, how did you get involved with helping to guide and create the Ultraverse for Malibu Comics? Well, Malibu had been the publisher for Image before Image became so huge that they decided they'd publish it themselves. And so Malibu had had experience with creators doing the stuff that they wanted to do and selling a lot of comic books. And Malibu had the money because they'd been involved in that. So they came up with this idea of let's do, you know, our own universe, but instead of basing it around the artists, let's base it around writers. And so um, I was at San Diego Con in 91, 92, I forget. Malibu debuted, um, Ultraverse debuted in 93, but I can't, again, I can't work backwards very well. But, you know, they came to me and they said, we've got this idea for this kind of secret project and we'd like you to be involved in it. And and um, it turned out Steve Gerber was involved in it and Mike Barr was involved with it, Jerry Jones, and, and actually, um, I'm forgetting, I'm blanking, Larry Niven was involved in it, uh, which was interesting because, you know, he was a science fiction writer and all that. They picked out who they wanted and then they came and asked us and it sounded good to me. Uh, and it was, you know, it was going to be fun to work with Steve Gerber again and, so there were a number of reasons to get involved in it. And then it was so much fun because it really did harken back to the original Total Creative Freedom deal. The Malibu Brain Trust, the idea was we need to create a coherent universe, but it's like every creator involved can throw in his own characters. I mean, we might have to, you know, we are working doing this as a group, so things might get modified to make things fit better. But in general come up with the characters you want to, and we'll figure out how, how to get them all in here, and we'll also figure out the universe that, con- that contains all these people. 
and we'll figure out villains to go with them. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it was, so they took us all to a resort in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we spent four days, I think, just, you know, sitting in rooms or sitting around the pool or whatever. Just each guy would say, well, here are the characters I want to do. And everybody else in the room would go, well, he could do this too. And what about if he did that? And then, you know, I mean, it was really, it was fun. It was, it was a real bullpen, for want of a better word. And so then we debuted, and it was the Ultraverse did great. And then Marvel went bankrupt, and they took everybody else in the business down with them. And Malibu was like the last company, you know, smaller company, not DC, but I mean Malibu. Dark Horse had a universe at that point. Various people had universes. Malibu was the, like the last one to hit bottom, but eventually they hit bottom. And they did have money, but they didn't have an infinite amount of money. So when they hit bottom, and they had pioneered the whole Photoshop coloring thing. Hmm. And so Marvel and DC both said, that looks pretty cool. We have no idea how to do that. Why don't we just go buy these guys? You know, we thought DC was going to buy it for a long time, and then for whatever reason, they didn't, and then Marvel did. And then, unfortunately, they wanted the coloring department. They didn't want... Well, I mean, the deal, this is this is not even... Uh, it's pretty simple. I mean, Malibu had given us creators a piece of the action. And if Marvel were to publish Nightman, they would have to pay me a little bit of money. It's been explained to me that if they published Nightman and they paid me a little bit of money, then the guy writing the Fantastic Four would show up saying, well, how come I can't get paid a little bit of money? And they would say, you didn't create the Fantastic Four, but still it would lead to probably internal problems. And so they put all those characters in a drawer and locked it up and there it stays. Over the years, I've tried, various people inside Marvel have tried to, like, resurrect them, and it never, you know, it always just hits a brick wall at some point when some accountant somewhere says you'd only be getting 95% of the money <laughs> instead of 100% of the money if you if you did this. So, I mean, our pieces, that's, that's you know, that's basically the size of our piece that we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't have bankrupted them. And, and my counter-argument is 95% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And I would argue that there are characters like Nightman, uh, or Prime, or whatever, who don't have any counterpart at all in the Marvel Universe, so it wouldn't be like duplication of effort. But as best I can tell, you'll never see the Ultraverse characters again, which is too bad, because it was a lot of fun when we started. Would you be okay with them bringing in, bring them into Marvel, or would you like to still see them uh, kind of off well, in their yeah. own little area? Again, in 2001, 2000, somewhere in there, Again, at San Diego, I got approached by Marvel, who said they had decided to do the Ultraverse, and they wanted me to write the series, which would bring the, the Ultraverse characters into the Marvel Universe. And I worked all that out, and then all of a sudden, some accountant somewhere said, wait a minute, and the project just, you know, just stopped. I mean, we were, we were cruising right along. I had the first issue blocked out, and the first year blocked out. You know, I mean, I had a, I had a script or a synopsis of the first issue and a, and a, you know, hit points on the, on what would happen after that. I, you know, there, I was, I was up for that. I, I thought that would be really, really cool. The specific things being that, you know, the Malibu characters had been heroes in their universe, and for them to suddenly drop into the Marvel universe when nobody knows, you know, when Nightman has been famous for a while and all of a sudden nobody knows who he is. Meanwhile, he has no idea who Spider-Man is. So he's not in awe of Spider-Man. He doesn't, doesn't mean anything to him. I thought that would be really fun to play with, the two different universes um, coming together. You know, and Prime, 
who was really just a kid, would end up at Professor Xavier's schools for gifted youngsters and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It would just be really fun to drop these people who, who didn't know that they were supposed to be in awe of certain people and, in fact, figured they were pretty awesome themselves to be dropped in the Marvel Universe. I, I was totally running with that, and then it got stopped. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's it's that's too bad. That's you know that's just a shame because you know a lot of those characters were pretty cool and wouldn't you know wouldn't be stepping on you know any Marvel characters' toes wouldn't wouldn't cause any problem. But it came, it flared up, and then it went away. That was that's the nature oh. of the Ultraverse. Uh, what might have been, Josh? You got any, got anything else? Because uh, you know, I know we've been on here for you know over an hour and some change, and I didn't I don't want to keep them too long right off the bat. No, but. exactly. Yeah, we don't want to <laughs> wear them out. Wear out our welcome. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, actually, just wanted to know if there was anything you're you know currently working on, or uh, besides the, the Max August novel still coming out. Yeah, the Max August books. That's I'm got another series that I'm working up, and another series which is out, sort of making the rounds. I've got a good book agent, and he's handling that end of it. I mean, that's, again, with books, totally different from comics. Um, you come up with an idea, you write a good chunk of the book, you give it to your agent, he sends it around. It takes months, really always months, for people to read stuff and then get it through their publishing committees and so on and so forth. Very, very slow <laughs> compared to comics, but that is the nature of the business, so that's the way that works. So, yeah, I, you know... I'm just proceeding with all that stuff. New things will appear in due course. <laughs> but the Max August books are out now, and uh, I heartily recommend them <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's still it's me telling stories again. I am having to write about looking out the window. Uh, and, you know, there are no pictures except for the cover. Um, you know, I've learned in, since I moved over that some people like comics and they don't really want to read prose books and, and so on and so forth. So it's not like a perfect one-on-one. -on -one. But, I mean, if you liked my stuff in comics, I'm pretty sure you'd like my stuff in, in prose as well. So, I mean, I just have yeah, one there. final question for then, uh, Steve. I mean, having written for so many years, what is it like for you to walk into a, sh uh, a bookstore, let's say Barnes & Noble, lo uh, your local comic book shop, and to see your name? Right there on on the uh, on the shelf. Is that what was that like the first time you saw that? And do you ever get tired of seeing that? I think the first time it happened. I mean, I was I was thrilled and amazed, and 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 I know you know I'm I just recently got a package of comics that I sent to my parents at that time when they were clearing out their attic. Now they sent them back to me, and it was you know it was like the first Beast and the first Defenders and stuff like that. So I was quite proud in that sense of like here's something with my name on it that's being published and you can, you know, and again, you could buy it anywhere in those days. When you're writing for the mass market, you don't think about it so much, but the mass market is a lot of people. And so in later years, I mean, I was able to get Michael Chabon and, and, and Brad Meltzer and other people to say nice things about my stuff because when they were kids, they were reading it, you know, and, and right. knew that some of those people would grow up to become famous in their own right. It's it's more just kind of I'm not exactly sure how to say it. I just a reprint. They sent you know Marvel sent me a reprint. You know which they do whenever they reprint my stuff. They send me copies, and I got something just a week or so ago, and I looked at it and I saw that it said Engelhart on the front cover, and I thought that's kind of odd, isn't it? You know, I mean, like, <laughs> um, that my name, you know, my name apparently sells stuff, and it, so it goes on the cover, and yet you know it's like. 
I mean, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to humble brag here or anything. You know, it's like, uh. but I mean, I didn't do it to become famous. Really, I did it because I like doing it, and that probably helped the fact that other people liked it and blah 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 blah. But you know, it is it it is odd. I mean, I, I will say it does strike me as odd to see my name as a sales draw, shall we? Because <laughs> um, that was that wasn't what it was what it was about for me, but. On the other hand, I mean, I'm glad that it's true. I mean, you know, I probably it probably helped me sell sell novels first to the publishers and then to the buyers, because people do know the name and and all that. I'm just sort of standing there shaking my head at it, <laughs> as much as anything, you know. Well, I just want to take a, a real quick moment to thank you for your time, Steve, and I'd like to bring you back on maybe sometime in the future because there's still a lot that we didn't go over. But like I said, I just don't want to wear out our welcome. But the one thing I want to say is when I like I said when I was researching this, I was surprised at um, how often your name kept coming up when I was researching as far as, oh my God, I, I'd forgotten you'd written this or you'd written that. But a lot of my favorite moments in comics uh, came directly from your pen. And I do want to thank you for uh, for what you've done to shape me as a comic book reader. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Again, I was trying to <laughs> trying to be entertaining, so I'm always <laughs> glad to hear that I entertained somebody. You, know? you did, you did. Thank you so much. Absolutely, yeah. I second all of that. It's okay. been an honor to talk to you. No, we can do it again sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve, and you have a good night. Okay, you too. Bye. <laughs> bye.